Thank you, Yosef. During the season of Lent, we have been focusing our attention on our Lord Jesus Christ and the time that he spent and experienced the wilderness. In the, in the first week, we looked at the time that he physically spent in the wilderness being tested and tempted by Satan to compromise his unique identity and mission. Last week, we followed our Lord into the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced and prayed through the test of whether he would avoid or embrace the cross. Not simply death on a cross, but a particular kind of death. A death in which he would take upon himself the judgment and consequences we deserve for our sin and rebellion against God. Today we come to the cross itself and consider the words that Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. Uh, I wanted to look at it in the context of the, of the last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And if you could just put up that slide. I want you to just take uh, two minutes in groups of two or three or four. There's an exercise. I don't know. I was thinking back at Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is different, you know. I think one of these sayings, at least, maybe two, are different than the others. And I want to see what you can figure out and uh, give me your answer to that. Starting now. Okay. So you might want to chat with somebody else to see one of these, not like the others. Okay, so I was told by someone that my instructions weren't really clear, so. <laughs> There's seven sayings of Jesus, and at least one or two of those is quite different from the others. Yes? So, which one is different than the others, or two. Number two, I, I see a number two. Anybody else think number two? Okay, there was a number, okay, two. And he had one think a different number was different than the others. Seven. Anybody think seven was different? We got a bunch of those too. Okay, those were the two right answers. One is just more right than the other one, but we'll see. <laughs> you see, most of them, are looking to others. There he is on the cross and all of the pain, and he is, woman, here is your son, and then he turns to John, the beloved disciple, here is your mother. So he's giving over responsibility of her. I am thirsty. He is thinking about himself. I mean, himself, he's st stating something. So that one, because the other ones, it is finished. I mean, that sounds pretty triumphant, right? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's thinking of others. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's with the, uh, you know, with the thief on the cross. He's thinking about others. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then that last one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It does seem a little jarring, doesn't it? So I think two, perhaps, but number seven, which is, which is interesting because if you had lived in that day and you had witnessed crucifixions, and you knew how gruesome they were, you would know that they were marked 
by screams of rage and pain, wild curses, and shouts of indescribable despair by the unfortunate victim. So most of the other things, one to six, would have been more unusual. Maybe two, not so much. But seven would have fit right in, almost. This cry of despair. Which begs the question, was Jesus really forsaken? I want to look at that seventh one. Or did he just feel forsaken? What did he mean? Let's look at Matthew chapter 27 and and read that phrase in context. Because uh, John gave us those first three that I had on the list, and the next three, Luke includes those, but only Matthew and Mark have one saying, and this is the saying that they have. So, Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Sounds like Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now let's leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, what Jesus meant was not obvious, immediately obvious. There was a lot of people who misunderstood it at the time, all of those around the cross. But given that this is the only one of the seven of Jesus' statements from the cross that both Matthew and Mark record, clearly they thought this is very important. And yet some contemporary readers find these words to be so shocking and so different than anything Jesus ever said throughout his ministry that they feel it is impossible to take these words at face value. In other words, maybe Jesus was only saying that he he felt, you know, at that moment abandoned, but surely God wouldn't and couldn't have really abandoned him. Others in a similar vein suggest that these words from the opening line of Psalm 22. Those of you, if you came in, I had a Uh, a copy of Psalm 22 for you, outlined in the five different parts of it. Because you notice that this psalm begins with a cry of abandonment. And there's elements of a, a lament psalm. Yesterday we had a potluck. We wanted to know what the ingredients were of, uh, of different things. When it comes to lament psalms, there's a number of different kinds of psalm or prayers. But A lament always has five ingredients. Okay, there's one that doesn't, but that's really telling when it's missing an ingredient. And the five ingredients are address. It is is not just complaining, it's complaining to God. (laughs) Okay, and then there is a complaint section, and it will sometimes come back to that. And then there will be a confidence that comes through. uh, in, In part of it, in this, there's a sense of the collective history, God, this is what you did. And then it will be another confidence section with a a personal history. And then there will be a a petition. That's the part we might think of as prayer, and it is. And then this one, though, 
that starts so dark ends so bright in praise. Um, And so Jesus may well have had the whole psalm in mind. And yet given the fact that the only words that he said aloud on the cross were that opening line, um, I think it's telling. I think they expressed what he went through on the cross. And then we wonder, well, how can this be? And to understand this, we need to remember both what Jesus had predicted. He had predicted his death on a cross several times. We looked at that a bit last week. Remember from Luke, in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, and again in 44, and then again in chapter 18. He will say, this is what is coming, and he's on this journey to Jerusalem where he knows what is going to happen. And then he also interpreted what this death was. We looked at that a little bit last week as well. In, uh, in Luke 22, verse 37, he interpreted his impending crucifixion through the lens of Isaiah 53, which is the prophecy of God's unique servant who will justify many, that's, that's all that the chapter says, by bearing their iniquities, their sins, their rebellion, their transgressions for them. And Jesus is saying, it's coming, and this is what it means, its significance. And this is how Jesus' would, disciples later would come to understand the purpose behind his death. It was not a total loss and a shattering of all hopes. For in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it was, Paul will say, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Then he repeats it, God was reconciling himself, the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Well, Paul, how does this work? And then he will say, God made or appointed him who had no sin, the truly sinless and innocent one, to be sin. Or it's a play on a Hebrew word, but a sin offering. But he's taking on himself the sin of the world at that moment. For us, Paul says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might have God's righteousness in exchange for the sentence of guilt and death that was over us. And Paul will also say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he will say... In other words, Christ redeemed us from the curse, the consequences of the law, because we were all lawbreakers against God's law. And he did that by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Anybody who breaks God's law, this is the consequences of it. And he, everybody would have said, he's cursed. But that's because he was taking the curse upon himself for us, Paul is saying. This is what we came to understand because of what God would do. And another piece of evidence is the darkness at noon. I mean, I've lived through uh, a solar eclipse, right? How long does a solar eclipse last? Um, A minute, you know, maybe a couple if you'd include the before and after parts. It was for three hours, And the darkness at noon was also a testimony to what was happening in that moment. For uh, throughout the Old and New Testament, darkness 
is a symbol of God's judgment. Time and again, but I just pulled out two verses. In Amos, Amos says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's part of a a statement about judgment. And then Amos will say also, The day of the Lord. (laughs) Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And he's speaking that to the people because you've been you know, living like the devil, and yet you think, oh, the day of the Lord, you know, the final day, and God's going to make everything wonderful. And he's like, but you've been living like the devil. For those who have been living like that, that day will be a day of darkness. That's the judgment. And so the time of God's ultimate judgment is also a day of darkness. And the darkness on that day then, uh, I love what Timothy, commentator Timothy Geddert says, He says, that darkness on that day was a commentary on the meaning of Jesus' death. It was God's commentary on it. It speaks of God's judgment on all humanity falling now on Jesus. And when we put this all together, Jesus' predictions, his interpretation of his death, the commentary of the darkness, we see that Jesus experienced abandonment for us. His cry is the inevitable sequel to the horror which he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the culmination of the commitment he made during his temptation in the wilderness and the prayer he prayed in Gethsemane to carry out the Father's will, whatever the cost. And now on the cross, he who had lived wholly, entirely for the Father, experienced the full alienation from God that was involved in bearing the judgment of God. As one writer put it, Jürgen Moltmann put it, not until we understand his abandonment by the God and Father whose imminence and closeness he had proclaimed in a unique, gracious, and and festive, glorious way, Can we understand that what was distinctive about his death? Just as there was a unique fellowship and intimacy with God in his life and preaching, so in his death there was a unique abandonment by God. The cost of that. I was thinking of a line, this is the way. He was talking about the way of the Father, and I was watching the Mandalorian. I don't know, any Mandalorian fans? There's a few of you. I don't know, but it, it, you don't need to know it. But if you know at all, it's uh, you know it's a Star Wars takeoff there, and and the character though in it, he lives by a creed, and he embodies what it means to be a Mandalorian, and it's a code of traditions and ideals that they commit to upholding, you know, until until they die. And there's what's that? This is the way. Oh yes, this is the way. And then there's a moment, a few unique moments where it is all, it's coming and, you know, any wise person would say, I got to get out of here and save myself. And he will say, this is the way. And the other Mandalorians will say, this is the way. And if we die, this is, this is the way. We are so committed to this way. And I think of Jesus saying, this is the way. I asked the Father, isn't there another way? He said, this 
This is the way. You're going to experience hell. Hell is separation from God forever. From all goodness and life and hope. And when you take upon yourself all of the judgment, you're going to feel that as well. The one who had never felt any distance from the Father before feels the fullness of that so that we don't have to. I think this is the ultimate expression of what Jesus says, losing one's life for the sake of the gospel. It is a mystery that we can never fully grasp or fully appreciate. And yet abandonment is not the whole story. As the disciples would later witness to and announce to the world, Acts 2, verse 27 and following, and they would, they would say, he didn't leave him dead or abandoned. He would actually say, he would declare that he was the unique son of God by raising him from the dead so that the world would know. But even here from the cross, we do well to notice that Jesus cried out not, Oh God, oh God. He said, My God, my God. The human Jesus felt and gave expression to the abandonment that he was enduring, but he also retained his trust. As Leon Morris notes, in the anguish of God-forsakenness, Jesus still cries out in trust, and we should not miss this aspect of the cry of dereliction. Uh, I would have liked to have walked you through a a little bit more Psalm 22, but in view of time this morning, uh, you're going to have to come to our small group on Thursday, and uh, and we'll go through that one together, so if you want to join us... um, But it is the prayer that Jesus prayed, and it is the one of the Psalms that is then picked up on the most in the New Testament, because they saw not just what Jesus endured for us, but that the the darkness of what he experienced and the heights of what then would follow in his resurrection, you know, would be even more glorious. So I just want to look at two takeaways for us. Skip to that. Uh, One. One is that Jesus experienced abandonment for us. It was the cost of our redemption, a cost he was willing to pay because he did not, he couldn't bear living without us. God could not bear living without us. And it was a higher love than the high, you know, than than the, the greatness of that cost. It was the reversal and restoration of Adam and Eve's separation from God. God is living still with an ache. You know, some of us uh, have people in the family that are out of joint, right? And we always live with an, an ache. God lives with that ache. And that's what he's committed himself. I want us to all be one. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to restore relationship. So there's nothing that you have to do on your side. I've done it. You just have to say I admit, I have blown it. I need that forgiveness, you know? I'd be filled with stickers. (laughs) I went up the other week, uh, Lisa, when they were, she was setting up for the lesson and they had all these blank canvases. And I said, you're going to do painting today? She said, no, we're doing it on forgiveness. 
We all want a blank slate. We all want to be able to start over again. That image just stuck with me. That's what God wants us to do. And if you've never prayed to invite Jesus into your heart, I want you to just, this is a prayer that Jesus wants you to pray. And I want to encourage you, I'm just going to pray it out and make these words your words. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and I invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, I would love to know that. (laughs) Or share that with somebody else around you that you can grow in your journey, in your life of faith. And a second application as well is, Jesus prayed a lament, and so can we. And so can we. Some people think that, you know, Psalms are sub-Christian. That was the Old Testament lament. No, praying through the Psalms can help us learn to be honest with God and put into words the thoughts and emotions that we are going through. Those things beneath the surface that are causing us so much fear or worry or anxiety and, and surface them, where better to do that than in God's presence? You know, sometimes we feel like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put us together again. But there is one who can. And lament is part of the journey, but it's not the destination. No. Lament is not something to, to wallow in. There's biblical examples of getting stuck in it. We need to be aware of this, but we also need to listen for God breaking through with reminders from our own personal and collective history. And we need to praise him when he answers. I want to invite the team to to come up. And we are going to, uh, as they're coming up, let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you said this is the way. And I'm willing to do it, Father. Thank you that you did that for us. And that you continue to extend your grace to us. Lord, you live in an ache in your heart for all those, Lord, who have not yet reconciled with you, who have not opened up their lives to you. And Lord, we want to open up our lives to you even more and more. And give us opportunity, Lord, to share this good news with someone this week. Amen.